Hello, and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I'll be talking with my friend, Dr. J. Kristen Urban, who is Professor Emerita from Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where she taught in the political science department for more than 25 years. Dr. Urban taught a variety of courses related to international, Middle East, and African politics, as well as courses on conflict, peace, security, justice, and human rights. She undertook her doctoral fieldwork in Israel-Palestine, where she examined the policy and decision-making processes of the mid-level Palestinian leadership that directed the first two years of the 1987 Palestinian Intifada. Since then, Dr. Urban has spent time in Russia, Romania, Italy, Turkey, Oman, and Saudi Arabia, and she was a 2003-04 Senior Fulbright Scholar to Bahrain. Her research has moved more broadly into conflict analysis and peacebuilding. She is currently working on a book on peace and justice in the Abrahamic traditions. We're on something of a Dr. Urban streak right now at More Than Politics. Today's episode is the second of a two-part conversation with her on the current state of the U.S. on the world stage and the international developments that have set that stage. On last week's episode, Dr. Urban and I covered the period immediately following World War II through the second Bush administration. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should go back and do so before you listen to today's episode. This second part of the conversation will make more sense after you've heard the first. Today, we pick up our conversation at the Obama administration. We discuss the ways in which the U.S. has sought to pull back from the world stage under both Presidents Obama and Trump, and indeed, in some ways, back to the 1990s. We discuss China and the Middle East, trade and conflict. And we discuss the implications of an increasingly isolationist United States as we face the global challenges of the future. If you've subscribed to More Than Politics, you'll know that there was yet one more episode with Dr. Urban this past weekend, an impromptu emergency podcast episode regarding the August 4th explosion in Beirut. You'll notice that in today's conversation, which was recorded on July 24th, we also touched on Lebanon. Of course, we had no way to know that 11 days later, Lebanon's troubles would worsen dramatically. I hope you'll continue to pray for the people of that country. All right, All right. So now we've now covered for today's the conversation. first couple decades I after hope the you Cold enjoy War, it. which yeah. sort of brings us to where we are now. So could you explain sort of from the Obama administration into the Trump administration and, of course, with the pandemic we're experiencing currently, can you just sort of describe where we are internationally at this point? Okay. Internationally, we have moved to be a more solo actor. And as I said, I think, you know, sometimes Trump is given, you know, it's like, well, it's all happened under him. But as I mentioned, you know, some of this started in 92, you know, right. when we when we started having um, right. voices in America that wouldn't support this, you know. Right. And uh, Obama, started, Obama started to pull back from the international mm-hmm. stage, too, a little bit, didn't he? Right. Um, as yeah. a reaction to the Bush administration. Exactly. Well, he right. pulled back uh, from military expansionism. Right. I, I right. think that was, that was part of what he was running on. He was one of the only, or maybe he was the only Senate. No, because Sanders did too. Uh, 
the two of them, I think, were the only senators who voted against the Iraq war in 2003. Um, mm. And so when he was running for president, that was part, you know, we're going to bring the troops home. Um, and uh, so that became a kind of anti-military sort of, you know, it resonated as a kind of anti-military. And they undertook voice. the base realignment um, process at that point too, didn't they? Closing some bases, even right? Some of those had started right. under Clinton okay. uh, with the peace dividend in the nineties. Mm. Yeah, and then under Obama, um, also, you know, it's like, well, we're not going to be the policemen of the world. I don't think Obama intended for us to not be engaged with the world. However, he was very concerned about climate change, you know, and he went to, he worked, you know, a lot, a lot for that. I think he was on board with development, you know, with, mm -hmm. uh, and he sent our ship over for the Ebola crisis, you know, our military ship to work, you know, in Sierra Leone to, you know, help organize because the military organizes things really well. <laughs> they know how to, they know how to do things and get them right. done properly. Right. Uh, so he, it, he was on board with the soft power, but pulling back on the hard exactly. power. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pulling back on the hard power. Exactly. Uh, the idea that we don't need to be policemen of the world. Um, and so that started with that. And then uh, when Trump came, then that has been, uh, been magnified, put put it that way, I guess. And and the America First, the idea, maybe almost going back to World War One, you know, where we were totally isolationist. Okay, that we can do this ourselves. You know, we don't need anybody else, and uh, we can right. go Trump it seems alone. To, Trump seems to want to pull back on all counts on both the soft on and all, hard. Yeah, power. yeah, um, yeah. He's been. He maybe hasn't been as successful as he wanted to be on it, but he's he seems to be going in that direction. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's more. And while America is an amazing country, uh, the global reality that we live in now is interdependence. You know, right. we have thousands of trade agreements. You know, some some not very important, but we have tons of tons of agreements. International. I taught international law for a while. Uh, we have, you know, thousands of international laws, you know, that, that we have right. all agreed upon and that we follow for the most part, you know. Right. And I think the pandemic really, too, has shown a light on just how interdependent we are because, yes. you know, we all understand yeah. that uh, we don't have the same manufacturing capacity we had. Yeah. And we knew that before from sort of an, a yeah. jobs and economics perspective. But now we're also seeing the results of it, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we didn't we weren't able to to make what the cotton swabs for all the coronavirus testing. Is that not crazy? We didn't have yeah. manufacturing capacity. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it just yeah. has really underlined just how dependent we've yeah. become on the rest of the global. No, side. that, that's and I, I didn't even think about that, but yes, yes, we've had, and a, a number of, I'm in, in the Seattle area now, a number of the governors in the West, because they couldn't get a hold of the PPE, you know, the protective gear, um, they're ordering it all. It's all coming in from China, you know, and uh, and, you know, ordering everything like that from China. So uh, mm -hmm. but not only uh, the manufacturing, just the the R&D for um, the virus, you know, mm -hmm. how you come up with um, a vaccine. Right. Um, you know, uh, that, that requires normally, as we've been told by Dr. Fauci, um, it normally takes like 
five to 10 years, you know, to, to develop something uh, that we know is efficacious and safe, you know, with all the trials. Um, and we're trying to do it in one or two years. And so we have, there's labs all over the world working on it. And um, the fact that we initially, I mean, there was a testing kit that the World Health Organization issued, and we decided we were going to use our own. Mm -hmm. uh, and But we weren't like set up to get it in place right away. So that, I think, is one reason that the Europeans, you know, they, they took that and were able to test people and get, you know, serious testing done. Um, where we were, you know, I mean, we have very smart people. We certainly can develop our own and no qualms there. Um, but if there already was one available, right. <laughs> you know, that cuts down some of the time, you know, right. and in, in a case like this, you know, it's the lag time is important. You know? Yeah. I kind of wonder if, if that's yet another symptom of the direction that the U.S. has been going that is inwards, you know, yeah. <laughs> turning yeah, inwards. Yeah. yeah turning inwards and it's uh yeah with our well i know you've been doing some work in the area of immigration and stuff I, that's not an area i i uh, have, have worked in but but even things like that you know who is an american who is a citizen and who stays out and who gets in you know all of those uh we're we're in a very um uh, a very tr challenging time i guess is, is sure. the way you know we're Identity been, is becoming a, you know, big question for people. Right. There've been so many changes on that front, just even in the past 15 years. I mean, yeah. the U.S. sort of position on immigration from a political perspective is, is in such a different spot now than it was during the Bush administration, yeah. even. Yeah. <laughs> so or, or even, very long or even Reagan, you know, when he, oh, sure, when yeah. he, yeah, yeah, issued a kind of blanket, you know, okay, we, we recognize this, you know. Right. So, yeah, yeah. No, right. it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Another yeah. challenge. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that um, you were mentioning the, um, R&D and the sort of scientific right. work that's being done right now in, in search of a vaccine. And um, I have to say the one sort of bright shining silver lining that I've seen in all of this is that it has been really interesting to see how the scientific community has just like jumped into action oh, wow. and yeah. re diverted resources and worked together in a way that had yeah. never been seen before. So yeah. across the globe. So I think yeah. that's just been fascinating and really heartening. I don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah. And I don't know how it will handle vaccines actually coming out. I mean, I think once vaccines are starting to be released, we're going to see a lot more. Then you get the pharmaceuticals. You get the pharmaceuticals and. and right. Um, so I, I think uh, I think. And you know patents and all that stuff. Right, know. I think we are definitely in store for some ugliness. I'm I'm hoping it's not that it's not as bad as I fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hope not. I hope not. Also, the there was uh, an article in the uh, one of the Economists uh, a couple of weeks ago that was talking about research that um, has been ongoing since the SARS. And the the bird flu and all of that in the '90s that you know emerged in Asia, and um, the, the the work was being done in Vietnam, and now that that we can do gene type typology so quickly and relatively inexpensively compared with what it used to be, 
and of course we can put everything on computers. So, you know, we get all of those data there. Um, what they were wanting to do was take blood tests from like everybody and see what antibodies are present already so that they can get a handle on what might be coming up because people get exposed to things mm -hmm. and we don't know how these viruses are jumping and many of you know they all jump from animals to man now sort of an early warning system huh exactly mm -hmm. and it was going to cost four billion dollars to uh to basically underwrite this research in a more fulsome way because they'd done this these you know, they have the research from Vietnam, but they wanted to make it global. And so far, nobody has stepped up to foot that bill. Um, but those are the kind of challenges that require interdependence, that mm -hmm. require us to think of everybody, not just ourselves. Uh, because in this kind of a setting, I mean, if, if we don't take care of Madagascar, <laughs> um, it can, you know, a Madagascar guy can wind up somewhere else and we've got it, you know, uh, the way, the way our world, you know, communication and travel and business right. and everything else. Yeah, so I, it I, is our problem, you know. All right, absolutely. I mean, when I first started hearing about the coronavirus in January, in maybe mm -hmm. mid-January about the effect it was having in China, I yeah. felt like my ears were up. Like I thought, yep. oh, yep, yep. if it, if it is next. enough, right, if it is enough of an issue to shut down a whole city or a whole mm -hmm. region, then just wait. Because we live in a global society now where all it takes is somebody getting on an airplane yeah. and crossing an ocean and it's another country's problem within hours. Yeah. Yeah. So continent, I, another continent's problem. Right. Even. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So with the way our globe is so interconnected these days, mm -hmm. a, a problem in one country can very quickly become a problem for right. the rest of the world. Right. right. So making America great, I think, means making America recognize its interdependence right. <laughs> with the rest of human humankind, you know. Well, and, yeah, and, and I mean, honestly, I feel like it's a um, it it's a situation where, in order for the U.S. to do well, the rest of the world has to be doing well too. You know, it's uh, what do yeah, they say? A yeah, rising yeah. tide raises all boats. I think it's probably yeah, yeah. the most realistic way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um. Now, we've brought up China a couple times, but if you could mm -hmm. sort of bring us from its own uh, economic opening to today and sort of just, just tell us where we are today in relation to China. Okay. And I'm not an East Asian right. uh, specialist, just okay? Just but yeah. Um, <laughs> one of, yeah, one of the things that has been a surprise is that Xi, uh, the new president in China, um, has taken such a turn to what we would call the right, you know, to to conservative Chinese policies, okay, mm -hmm. um, communist uh, uh, state control, you know, th those kinds of things. Um, Deng Xiaoping, uh, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, kind of opened up China to you know these economic zones and and uh, connecting with the world. But she has uh, been fairly strident uh, and now it has just, 
engineered um, the fact that he's essentially president for life there. So, um, so in these authoritarian societies like that, uh, they control, you know, the leader of the Communist Party controls all of the resources and they can make decisions that don't have to do with, um, with bottom line calculations. You don't have to worry about red lines and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, so that being said, uh, their aggression in uh, the Asian continent has a lot of people very concerned, whether it's the South Seas, you know, they're building mm-hmm. these islands and then having military emplacements there. Uh, that's, you know, Vietnam is angry. The Philippines are angry. Uh, you know, South Korea is angry. Everybody's upset with them. Right. Um, the the U.S., you know, uh, it's affecting perhaps our shipping. You know, are we, whenever our seventh fleet goes through there, we are basically challenging the Chinese now, you know. Right, right. And just, just for those who aren't familiar with it, they are trying to extend their dominance over this region. Right. And so they're trying to establish um, land settlements and so are literally building islands so that yeah. they can put airstrips and fortifications on them so that they can say this is ours and extend farther out into the ocean. Yes. Correct. Correct. So that's one big, one big issue. Another of course is the, the ruling, the security laws that were just passed in Beijing last week that now apply to Hong Kong and Hong Kong uh, when the British turned it over after their 99 year lease was up uh, when they turned it over in 1996 uh, to China, it was going to be uh, one China, two policies or two two systems, something like that. And uh, and they were supposed to leave the Hong Kong or ERS, uh alone. Hong Kong had been, you know, democratic for you know over a hundred years while while the Brits were there. Right, and they so, were supposed to leave it democratic for another what fifty years or so, something like that, right? Uh, well, at least until, yeah, at least until I think 2050. I think it was at least until then. So they have imposed these very strident uh, security laws now on Hong Kong, also on Taiwan. Now, we're probably not going to go into Hong Kong, but we've always had a really strong relationship with Taiwan. And, um, you know, all kinds of things could portend in the future, okay, for the United States and China, uh, just not with Hong Kong, but I think with Taiwan, you know, I don't think, you know, Western businesses are going to have problems because of Hong Kong. Absolutely. But I don't think we would get into any military standoffs, but definitely with with Taiwan. Uh, The other big thing with China is that it is using its economic largesse uh, in, in a couple of ways. Uh, one is, is called the China Belt Road Initiative, and they're right. building passageways through Central Asia, wanting to actually connect up with, with Europe at some right. point. Right. It's supposed to sort of be a new version of the old Silk Road. Silk right? Road, right. right. And and what China and China's also gone into Africa and done it's not building roadways, but it it goes in, offers these very poor countries and Central Asia, you've got poor countries too, uh, go go in and say, okay, we'll provide the manpower uh, and 
and uh, and we'll build all this stuff for us. And you just build up the infrastructure, the right? Exactly. And then we will, you will pay us in your minerals or whatever. Okay. Um, so copper, for example, in uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, they've gone into Zambia in China, in uh, Africa, East Africa, and uh, and and built different parts of their infrastructure, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, Zambia is obligated for like the next hundred years to give them all their copper. And so it's interesting. Not a very I didn't realize that connection. Deal. I knew that they were going into Africa, but it's essentially we'll build you infrastructure. You sign over your mineral rights, huh? Exactly. Because wow. they don't have the cash. And so they're looking at it because the U.S., if the U.S. does something, they say, well, you've got to have a democracy. You've got to have this. You've got to have that and human rights and everything. And so it's like China doesn't care. Yeah, but they don't. The, they don't put in those requirements. Exactly. And so that looks very good to particularly authoritarian leaders and and countries, you know, but the infrastructure is not very well made. It's not maintained. They don't hire anybody locally. They bring all their own people in. And so, uh, you know, the local people aren't, it's not like a big development project in the sense that uh, there's no spillover kinds of things. Mm, uh, mm. They don't even, they eat their own food. You know, they don't even buy from the local market. So African countries are starting to get really frustrated with this. And so they might I, have like a highway system, but not the economic wherewithal to have the wealth to generate. Exactly. To do for the cars and the, <laughs> the right, maintenance exactly. and all that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. They haven't put any factories in place to make the stuff they need, for example. Okay. Uh, to to be able to build the road, you know, they just bring all that stuff in from China, and uh, now the Belt Road Initiative that's doing similar kinds of things, but then it's also trying to set up trade agreements and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the U.S. isn't involved at all, so we are we are relinquishing any interests in Asia in that respect. We're relinquishing, we haven't said anything about Russia, but Russia becoming involved in the Syrian civil war and Iran. And so Russia is now moving down. It has its deep water port uh, off of Syria now. Um, And so the U.S. really in withdrawing (laughs) has really withdrawn, you know, and if we want to put sanctions on China for something, uh, we're doing it alone. You know, we're not working with anybody else and sanctions don't work unless everybody, you know, is committed to uh, to seeing them through, you know. Right. Uh, I just wanted this might be a good point to bring up. um, I'm forgetting the title of it, but the big trade agreement that Obama had been trying to put into place, TPP or I just I just wanted to bring that up because if I understand correctly, the idea of that was for the United States to partner with other Asian countries mm-hmm. so as right. to be a counter to China. So it did not yeah. include China. It was the yeah. other countries. So they had sort of more leverage against China in trade. Is that correct? Right. I think right. so. And I think again, that's become really area, but yeah, I think that's become obscured, you know, and, and they have gone ahead. They, they have gone ahead without us for that, mm. um, but they won't be as powerful, you know, and they won't have the clout really to, to do things against China. That's, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Any of those international agreements have been, 
and they're they are hard for individuals to understand you know i mean right that's the well thing. I, I yeah i think that um i mean i i totally understand why especially americans who live in communities that were really reliant on manufacturing i totally mm-hmm. understand sure why they're um wary of trade agreements i get it right um right, but right. i think that a lot of people thought that that was a way for us to be closer to China and do more trade with China when it was really mm-hmm. meant to be a counterweight to China. Yeah. And I, yeah. I just think most people didn't quite get that. Yeah. And, and, um, it's any of these, any of these, um, agreements are really complicated. And sure. so for people, I'm not even sure that you know, our senators understand them when they're voting, you know, because the way it works is they have to come to the U.S. Senate for ratification uh, before they become part of U.S. law in in that sense. And they've they've got their whole research staff that can help, you know, their legal scholars and stuff that can sort these things out. But but they are difficult, you know, for you and me or, you know, and, and we study this stuff. But, you know, we're still lay people in that sense. And, right. Uh, well, and even if it is, even if an agreement like this were on balance better for the U.S., it's still going to be de- detrimental to particular communities because yeah, yeah, if yeah. you have a factory that's going to be impacted or you have a farm that raises right. soybeans and it's going to, yeah. you know, there are so many factors that go into it that you're always yeah. going to have losers, even yeah. if no. on balance your country comes yeah. off well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that also brings up one of the big challenges for the United States as we're moving further into the 21st century. We're living in a new world now. We can't be mm-hmm. living only in manufacture. Uh, somehow our education systems have to be bolstered so that we can produce citizens who can work in cyber tech, you know, right. who can work in medical uh, stuff, who can work in these other areas. Um, right. And, we have to try uh, to look toward tomorrow, tomorrow's economy exactly. and figure out how we can position ourselves to exactly. do well in that economy as opposed to yesterday's economy. Yes, exactly. And instead of just simply crying and saying, gee, we have to keep the coal mines open, uh, right. even though we know that's, that's bad for the, that's bad for the miners. I mean, you know, they, that's a medical issue right there. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we really have to, uh, have to engage in, in, uh, education much more. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I keep thinking, seriously. um, you know, I think about my own kids and I think, well, what yeah. would I want them to do? I'm like, well, I, definitely want them to be in fields that have a future. Yeah. I don't I don't want them <laughs> I don't yeah. want them to commit themselves to something that's going to collapse around the corner. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah, so I I feel like as a whole the American economy really needs to move past this idea of manufacturing as our engine. You know, we've got to we've got to move past yeah. that. That yeah. said, I do think the pandemic has shown us that it might behoove us to economically support some industries that are essential, you know, yeah, um, yeah, even yeah. in manufacturing. I mean, we should be yeah. able to produce enough cotton swabs for tests. Like exactly. we, yep, yep, we yep. should be able to 
uh, produce the protective equipment. Like there are certain necessary things that we want to have um, for the next pandemic. And I know none of us want to hear about the next pandemic now, but this isn't going to be the last one. But it'll be there. Yeah. Right. It'll be be coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So speaking of that, what do you at this point see as the the biggest challenges ahead of us and what might be on the horizon? Well, I think the climate change certainly is something where, you know, uh, you know, the Antarctica is, is diminished, is diminished every day, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the Arctic is as well. Um, uh, polar bears don't have a place to live. The permafrost in Russia is a sort of getting soft. And uh, that's a huge problem in Siberia. There's, there's all kinds of things going on there. So yeah, we, we have to like realize that's, that's an issue. Um, other, other things um, are uh, a big thing that was revealed during COVID in the U S but also other places is the, the huge, uh, structural inequality uh, globally mm-hmm. as well as in the U- U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. There's this huge gap in incomes uh, from the north, what we call the north, which is the U.S. and Europe, basically north of the equator versus the global south, which is you know mostly the, the developing world, which seems to lie south of the equator. Uh, huge gaps there. Right. Then the, the northern countries... Uh, could write a check to their citizens, could do an economic stimulus, and the rest of the world can't do that. Can't do that, exactly. And even within, of course, we've seen that even within our own country, this is an issue. So I think this is a a huge issue, these inequalities. Um, Other other things are going to be the cybercrime thing, Uh, China, North Korea, and Russia being the big criminals as far as we're concerned here. Human trafficking is horrific, and uh, we don't hear about it that much. But there's, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's awful. So those, you know, aside from the existential threats, you know, of of uh, of things falling into the earth and you know <laughs> sun sunspots, you know, uh, wiping out our satellites and all that kind yeah. of stuff uh, that we can't do that much about. You know, these are things that that we we can kind of look at. Um, in terms of the powers that I think we're going to be wrestling with, it's going to be China, Russia, Iran, probably. Um, because the, I think with the oil through the pandemic, nobody has been driving or very, you know, people mm-hmm. have been driving less, um, less petrol has been used and the prices that's knocked the prices down. We already had a glut and the prices were already low. So, and now we have even more of a glut. We've got a lot in storage. (laughs) Exactly. And, and we, we call countries like the Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, we call them rentier economies. They are living on rent basically. You know, they're, they're using their resources only. They haven't developed, you know, more broadly, uh, Hmm. sustainable, kinds of economic endeavors. Okay. So uh, Saudi Arabia and, and these countries have been buying the people's loyalty all these years. Right. They share, they, they, you know, they share the oil wealth. They have, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, don't they like literally get 
essentially like a paycheck out of the yeah, national oil Kuwait is, revenues? Kuwait as well, Qatar uh, uh, as well, probably the UAE as well. Um, Oman, I don't know, but that they do have like free education and things like that, healthcare, all, all that sort of stuff. There mm-hmm. is a lot of poverty in, in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, there there is a big economic gap there, the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's going to be a lot of political unrest if, you know, they're, they're already, Algeria, I'm, I'm thinking of other countries that uh, Algeria has had to cut its spending by 50% because of oil prices. Uh, Libya's kind of a basket case right now anyway. Um, but the other countries in the uh, Gulf region have also had to cut their spending by like 30% or 40%. Wow. So um, if uh, if people are not getting what they feel they need, uh, there's going to be a lot of political unrest. So, so the, these countries may be dealing with you know, some, uh, some political challenges in the, right. the, the Saudi, um, royal family has not been particularly good standing anyway with people mm-hmm. for, for many years. Um, and so this could kind of exacerbate that. So, you know, so I'm, I'm thinking Iran is the one that, that is a little more solid. Uh, I don't think we're going to be hassling with Saudi Arabia. The UAE also seems to be doing some interesting things. It's very small. Um, and of course, Qatar has gas, uh, the, the world's largest gas, natural gas supplies. So hmm. the oil probably doesn't affect it as much. Hmm. Um, but um, Iraq, Iraq, I don't know what this is going to mean for Iraq, which is already unstable. Hadn't um, some of the other countries been sort of ganging, ganging up on Qatar right before all this? Have they yeah, off? because yes, because Qatar, even though Qatar, um, the Emir supports Al Jazeera, which is oh, a right, very right. it's it's like the BBC. In fact, it was founded by guys that used to work for the BBC. So it's hmm. the only sort of open uh, press that that's not state controlled in all of uh, the Middle East. Okay. Right. They have interviews with with uh, Israelis, you know, which would never happen in any other ones. And it's but, based so it's, in Qatar, right? And it's based in Qatar. Um, that being said, the country has allied itself with the religious, what I would maybe call the right, you know, mm-hmm. religious extremists. And so uh, the rest of the Gulf has kind of you know, they're wanting to be more progressive and uh, they aren't, you know, interested in um, in being linked up. I mean, they've got their own religious extremists, but uh, but in the Gulf menu, they're on the wrong That's side. That's interesting. Of the, so they're sort of, of like the, the on the flip, the flip side on the yeah, yeah, <laughs> on yeah. the freedom of speech versus the well, it, religious it is, conservatism. But, but they're not in their own country. Okay. You know, right. they're not allowed to say whatever they want in their own country. But Al Jazeera is state supported, but it's it makes fun. It, see, its reporters then can report on what the leaders really say in Egypt and Tunis and mm-hmm. Morocco and Jordan, where the people in Jordan would never see it. Maybe, well, Jordan might be a little bit different because that's a little more liberal. Yeah. Uh, but. Um, uh, but Egypt, you know, you, you would never hear anything, you know, against the, the leadership in, in this new Egypt anyway, Al-Sisi. 
Um, and but but you could read about it in Al Jazeera. See, hmm. so they they could get on that, and uh, and that served. Qatar's interests, you know, to have the rest of the world, you know, sort of in disarray mm. <laughs> around around them, and then interesting, you know, yeah. So it's it's an interesting little autocracy, you know. Yeah, they, he has the money; he doesn't need anything. Uh, they're going to have the supposed to have the World Cup thing there in another year or two um, mm. on the sand. <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the, right. the Middle East. I think it'll be Iran that we're that we're probably doing things with. I don't know what's going to happen with Syria. Uh, that's just a big blank right now. I don't. Right. There's nobody there anymore. I mean, he's and then of course things are everybody. sort of uh, going downhill in Lebanon right now too, aren't they? Oh so. yeah, yeah. Ever ever since the seventies, Lebanon. Lebanon used to be this jewel. It was the Switzerland of the Middle East, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, it's it's tragic. I mean, it's uh, yeah the the way it's organized politically uh, was unsustainable. So right for those who don't know, its politics is structured so that it has to be it has to pretty evenly represent both Christian and Shia is it also and divided Shia and Sunni? So Shia yeah, and Sunni. yeah. So and like one office has to be occupied by a Christian, one by a Sunni Muslim, one by a Shia Muslim. Right. And and as uh, the last 30, 50 years have gone, uh, Christians, which were the majority, are now the minority. And, mm-hmm. and Shia, which were a minority, are now the majority. Mm-hmm. And the Sunnis, uh, which were kind of in the middle, are still sort of in the middle. So the offices don't reflect the reality on the ground. And then you get Iran coming in and doing things and you get Israel coming in and doing things. And, you know, it just, and now Russia's Syria always has intervened and caused problems. So do you think that Iran is going to be as able to interfere in other countries now that it's weak, been weakened by both COVID and by the uh, sanctions? Interesting. Or do you think it just makes that a priority no matter what? Um. It will be interesting. The Ayatollah Khamenei has been there since 1989. So he's pretty old. Mm-hmm. The, uh, oh gosh, what's it called? They have councils. I can't think of the name right now. But they have a council of authorities. I think there's nine, maybe there's six or nine Ayatollahs under him. And so those are the filter, you know, the, the, um, the legislature uh, can make its laws, but then they have to filter through this council, these councils, and then ultimately through Ayatollah Khamenei. That's, that's where, you know, it's democratic, but uh, the Quran is like sort of the ultimate rule. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, it's an Islamic republic in in, the, in that right. sense, and so he is, you know, gotta be going off somewhere at some point. <laughs> and then the it seems to me that three of these council members also are up for a reelection or replacement or something. So things could happen that you know move. Uh, that move it in a slightly different direction. You know, we're still talking Iran, so it's Mm -hmm, not going to be France or something. It's certainly not the U S but they might move in a slightly different direction because the resources have gone to things other than 
improving people's lives. And they're getting really tired of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Under Ahmadinejad, it went to building mosques and all this kind of stuff. And now it's gone to, you know, provoking things all over, you know, a lot of resources going other places. And with the oil prices down Mm -hmm. and everything else. Yemen and Syria. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, yeah. I completely forgot about Yemen, of course. Yeah. Supporting the Houthis in, in Yemen. Yeah. So um, I, you know, I don't know how that's going to go. It's kind of an opaque society. You know, we, we can't have people in there to see what's going on. They always get captured and called spies. And, you know, uh, so even if it's a mother going to visit her family or something, you know, they always wind up in jail. So it's, it's not an open society. Um, but, but people are really hurting in Iran. And the sanctions are part of that. Uh, the policies are part of that. The oil crisis are part of that. And and everybody's really angry at the Republican Guard because they own about, I don't know what, 50% of everything in Iran. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're a force to be reckoned with, even if, if there is a new Ayatollah, you mm-hmm. know, in the, in the supreme leader position, you know. All right. Well, to wrap everything up, I, I've been thinking, um, you know how after September 11th, we had a bit of a realignment in the U.S. government in that we created the Department of Homeland Security right. and shifted yeah. resources from other parts of the government into that to try to sort of reflect the new reality. I've been thinking about how we might, if we're smart, reflect our new reality now and Personally, um, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but politicians tend to be so short-sighted. You know, they're only concerned yeah. with the next election. They're they're always just trying to get them through the following day, and they they don't right. tend to think in a long-term right. uh, way. And I keep thinking, wouldn't it be helpful if we had if we had a department or a secretary or someone coordinating who whose explicit role is to see the major issues coming down the pipe and, mm-hmm. um, and try to at least make sure that we are in some way prepared for them. You're never going to be able to fully prepare, but at least know how to react. And um, I don't know. I, I know that's a pipe dream, but that's, that's sort of where I'm thinking. I, I was wondering if, if you have any sort of ideas about what we should be doing right now to position us for whatever's coming next. Wow. Wow. Um, I know that businesses do that, you know, corporations have departments that are wholly geared to, mm-hmm. and I'm not just pharmaceuticals. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. like Microsoft, you've got Google, you know, all these, these other kinds of places, manufacturing companies do the same thing. You know, what's, what's coming down the pike? What do we have to be uh, imagining? Um, in terms of government, the issue is always who's going to fund everything. Right. Resources. <laughs> exactly. And who's in the White House and whether government is seen in a positive way as it, you know, or is it seen as, you know, as a negative player, you know, sucking up uh, stuff that, you know, I could be doing on my own, you know, and right. it's using my resources, right. you know. So this um, this concern for community development in the long haul, 
I, I agree with you. It's it's kind of daunting under our system. Um, I I'm not sure how it would survive. Um, the Homeland Security has, you know, that has at least brought together, you know, different different groups as well, uh, where they weren't talking to each other at all before. I I'm wondering if the F, FDA, right, Food and Drug Administration, yeah, the FDA, the um, you know, Dr. Fauci, the, uh, in, in, um, sorry, NIH. Thank you. Yeah. National (laughs) Institutes of Health. Yeah. But, but these kinds of things, um, if we're thinking pandemics down the road, you know, there actually are groups connected with our weather forecast bureau. And that is a federal thing that are looking at asteroids and, uh, sunspots and all this kind of right stuff. and climate and such. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. So we just we just need someone to connect all of those pieces. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean I'm I'm yeah. I'm not I'm I'm not naive. I know that even if they had such an agency set up, it would it would be ignored if politicians wanting to wanted to ignore them. I just wish that we would stop and recognize that there are some big challenges ahead of us and um, recognize that we really need to think beyond the next election cycle. Yeah. And I wish that were explicit. And that we would once again, I'm an educator that we would once again value university scholarship. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you get you get research in things that don't sound like they make any sense. But then, my gosh, you know, 20 years later, boom, you know, they're the basis for something else. Right. And that's the thing about R&D. You know, they you can't always be hoping to gain something from it. There has to be a certain amount of research that's um research. <laughs> right. I was listening to something the other day that was talking about um, how, I th- and I thought this was so interesting, CDC, talking right. about how AIDS research has actually been uh-huh. really helpful to scientists who yeah. are looking into the coronavirus. Yes. That yes all of yes. this research for so long, some people might have said it was, it was fruitless because it hasn't generated uh, right. a vaccine for HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently it's really brought science to a point yeah. where they can much more easily figure out something like the right. coronavirus. And it's like, oh, that's, you know, interesting Absolutely. research done in one area is, ends up being beneficial in another. Our space, our, our heyday was when we were going to have a man on the moon in 10 years and NASA geared up and, and what they did wrong in my view, was they did not hire a PR person. They thought people would always be awed by space. You know, Mm. this would never be an issue. You know, we saw everybody was watching these guys walk Mm -hmm. on the moon. You know, it's never going to be an issue. It'll never be cut, you know. And uh, so much came out of that with medical stuff, with the, 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 uh, the little things you use in computers, you know, the microchips, the or, microchips. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Um, that came out of that kind of research that, uh, that, you know, we've been relying on ever since. And, right. and they, they never, you know, uh, really sat down and said, look what we've done. You know, they, they just assumed, you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. things, any of this essential basic, we call it basic research, 
people who deal with um, with tangible things every day think that this is just pie in the sky. These are like weird theory people. But right. but when you're dealing with basic research, you, you're developing techniques, you're developing new um, new equipment, you're developing new ideas as you find out new things, and it leads to other stuff. And you get a ton of outcomes from from that stuff, whether it's physics or medical or, you know, what other bioengineering, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, if we could bring somebody, but just like the EPA, which was put in place to, you know, give us a clean planet, uh, depending on who's in the Oval Office and who's in power, in the Senate, it can be completely ignored or undercut. And, um, and so that was, that would probably be what would, we have an, we have an education department right now, but the person in charge doesn't believe really in education. Um, So, you know, that, I mean, that can happen and, uh, you know, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have it, but maybe these groups are going to stay in their own little cubby holes and, uh, poke through when we need them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. This has been such a fascinating conversation to me. I have really enjoyed going through these decades and sort of getting a better <laughs> understanding of how we got to this point. I, I've i just been fascinated by it and I'm so thankful to you for sitting down to talk to with me about it. Well, thank you, Julie. This has been good for me, too, because it made me, I haven't taught international relations for about eight years now. And um, and it made me go back and, and kind of pull things together and think about it, because I've been working on other projects, you know. So, uh, so right. this, was, this was really good for me, yeah. too. So. And I've, so I've mostly been thinking about the domestic lately, so it's also been yeah. it's a little refreshing <laughs> to kind of poke my head out of out of that and, and pay attention yeah. to the rest of the world. So. Yeah. Well, our next generation is very important, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. so please <laughs> do. <laughs> Devote yourself. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. You are welcome. You are welcome. Have a very, very good day, and I'll enjoy uh, listening to your podcast. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. J. Kristen Urban. Next week, I'll be talking with writer Leslie Shawley about the experience of being politically uncomfortable. She and I enjoy a kinship of sorts. Our political views are similar to one another, but they make us outliers in our respective communities. Leslie, who lives in a conservative, southern, Republican state, identifies as a pro-life Democrat. And I, who live in a liberal, East Coast, Democratic state, find myself as a sort of moderate, uncomfortable Republican. We both identify with the minority parties in our states, but find ourselves as ideological minorities even within those parties. We are both very well used to being politically uncomfortable. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com 
and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.